Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Uh, before we get started with the show, I wanted to quickly remind people about our new anthology of speculative fiction about the future of work called Working Futures. Uh, we talked with some of the authors recently on the podcast, but I wanted to remind listeners in case they hadn't yet checked out the book. Uh, we've got 14 amazing stories in the collection. They're just really great, and we've been getting some great reviews on them with people saying that the stories have really made them think uh, about different things and about what the future might be like. Um, it's we're we're really really happy and and proud of of the stories in the book, uh, and we think that you'll really really enjoy them. Uh, so please please check it out. Uh, you can find it by going to Amazon and searching for Working Futures, or you can go to uh, our website about it, which is Working Futures, which is uh, Working Future. Uh, and dot .es at the end. Uh, so if you were to spell working futures and then move a period two spots uh, to the left, uh, <laughs> you'll get to the web page uh, and check it out or just find it on Amazon. It's easy enough. Uh, and uh, we know that you'll enjoy it. So please, please check it out. Thanks. The world is increasingly technological. So we have better get methodical. Bring in precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the for pulling the wall on us, painting and taking on all the plates and paint and trolls. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To so grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To so grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, for many, many years, uh, we've been writing on TechDirt about how much damage is done when people think that there's some sort of easy answer to dealing with copyright infringement that happens online. Uh, part of the problem, it seems, is that people seem to think that there's some sort of obviousness to copyright infringement that allows them to make rules or suggest ideas based on the fact that, uh, on the idea that, that uh, everyone knows what is and what is not. Uh, copyright infringement, only to realize much later that it's often not obvious at all what is and what is not infringing. Uh, for example, there have been a few times in the past where we've seen attempts to create a list of so-called infringing sites, uh, and that list of sites would either be blocked by ISPs or handed off to advertisers to allow them to block all their ads from appearing on those sites. Uh, the industry likes to call this approach uh, follow the money um, which is odd for a variety of reasons, uh, including if you actually follow the money, it often looks like uh, legacy industry players trying to avoid competition, not actually uh, stamp out infringement. For example, there was a list that we wrote about a few years ago that was put together by one of the very big advertising agency firms with the help of Universal Music. Uh, but somewhat incredibly, the list of sites that Universal had deemed uh, dedicated to infringement and which, of course, leaked out. Um, it included things like the Internet Archive and Vimeo and other sites that are generally considered perfectly fine. Uh, there was also somewhat incredibly Vibe magazine, which is a magazine that writes about the music industry quite frequently, and also uh, seven of the 12 most popular hip-hop blogs, according to Vibe magazine. So these are the sites that help promote the music, yet they were declared uh, dedicated to infringement. Even worse, the list of infringing sites included the personal website of one of Universal Music's uh, biggest uh, stars. So I was a bit surprised to see that WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, recently announced that it was putting together a very similar database 
what it's calling the BRIP database, B-R-I-P, which somewhat hilariously stands for Building Respect for IP. Uh, the purpose is the same as that earlier list that I spoke about. Uh, these, uh, the list would be distributed to advertisers to say, don't advertise on these sites. And yet everything about how this list is being produced uh, will almost certainly do the opposite of building respect for IP. Uh, WIPO is keeping the entire process secretive. There's no due process at all. Sites added to the list are not told that they're added to the list or why. There's no way to appeal. Uh, there's no way to get off the list, which isn't surprising since sites don't even know if they're on the list in the first place. Uh, while I asked WIPO a bunch of questions, uh, I got back a, mostly uh, a no comment or a promise to comment in the future that I don't think will ever actually come. Uh, except, amazingly, for one of the engineers who helped build the database showed up in our comments to defend it. Uh, he told us that there was no due process because these sites uh, know what they've done. Uh, and that because the database was built in partnership with government agencies, there was no problems to worry about. Hila somewhat hilariously, he named uh, three different government agencies, and they were all government agencies that we'd previously written about for uh, being involved in false accusations of infringement. Anyways, uh, Rick Shira, who's a lawyer in New Zealand who specializes in these topics, wrote up a Twitter thread uh, about a former client of his, the cloud storage company Mega, uh, who once got put on one of these lists despite the, the site's efforts at stopping infringing content on its site. And it had a somewhat significant impact on the company. So uh, Rick is here to talk about that. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hey, Mike. Nice to be here. I'm glad you could you could join us. So, can you tell us the story of what happened with Mega? Yeah, so Mega is a cloud storage site. It provides uh, encrypted uh, end-user encrypted uh, storage services, and it started in about 2013 uh, as quite a small startup, although it had some notoriety uh, given its relationship to Kim.com. Right, and I guess that's the the. I guess understandable reason as to why it did receive a bit of focus from rights holding organizations. What happened was that uh, a UK based brand agency uh, in uh, uh, was commissioned by a rights holding organization or a front for a right, rights holding organization in uh, Washington DC to uh, research supposedly and come up with a report on what in those days were called cyber lockers, uh, the precursor to streaming, which of now now of course is is much more prevalent. But in those days, cyber lockers were the way in which people uh, downloaded information and and got material uh, supposedly allegedly infringing from sites on the internet. So uh, they prepared a report uh, which was. Uh, if I can find the, the name for it, was uh, was a report uh, called um, Behind the Cyber Locker Door, a report on how shadowy cyber locker businesses use credit card companies to make millions. Mm -hmm. And was, as I say, it was commissioned by the Digital Citizens Alliance, a U.S. rights holder lobby group. Uh, yeah, uh, which, and, and which, 
which I understand is funded by the Motion Picture Association and similar organizations. Yeah, I was going to say that that's it's an interesting organization that's worth commenting on. Uh, and so I'm going to jump in and interrupt your story. Um, the Digital Citizens Alliance, they present themselves as, as sort of a, a grassroots type organization, yet it's entirely funded by the legacy industries, the, the MPAA in particular. In fact, um, when the Sony Pictures emails leaked, there was all of these emails about uh, the MPAA and studios planning and strategizing with the Digital Citizens Alliance to do all sorts of things to sort of attack internet companies and to blame them for things and, and to to prepare sort of a press narrative that they wanted, um, that they used. So it's, it's very much a front group for, for Hollywood. Yeah, and so, um, and, and the modus operandi of the way in which the report was prepared is consistent with that sort of approach because the report was prepared and published. It was published with great fanfare at a, at a glitzy event in, uh, in the United States, uh, but without having ever contacted the 30 or so organizations that were listed in the report, right. which included my client, Mega. Uh, so un, uh, we didn't know about the, uh, the event at the time. We didn't know about the publication. Uh, it wasn't until all of a sudden, uh, some little time later, uh, overnight, Mega, uh, Mega, as with many of the many types of sites, relies uh, for its uh, revenue on uh, on payment providers such as PayPal or other payment providers. And overnight, uh, literally, we Mega received a call from PayPal saying. Hey, look, we are going to terminate your service. Now, for a small uh, starting up site at the time, that was a calamity. You know, you, all of a sudden, the payment provider that you rely on for your revenue says we're no longer going to provide service to you. And it was incredibly surprising because only a couple of months earlier, we had gone, and I was directly involved in this, we had gone to substantial lengths with uh, conference calls and emails and the provision of information about Mega and how its service operates to uh, mollify PayPal's concerns that uh, Mega might be a cyber locker. And we had convinced them uh, comprehensively that Mega was not a cyber locker and therefore that they could provide service. So literally a couple of months after having gone through that rigmarole, uh, all of a sudden, uh, without much notice, literally less than 24 hours notice, PayPal said, we're, we're stopping service to you, which came as a complete shock to Mega because it didn't know at this stage what was going on. Uh, after a little while, we managed to find out from PayPal why they had decided to do this. And in a sort of an unraveling back to uh, the report that I mentioned earlier, we found that what had happened was that Visa and MasterCard had put pressure on PayPal to cease service. The reason why Visa and MasterCard had put that pressure on PayPal was that they had received a letter from Senator Leahy uh, in his role as chairman of the Judiciary uh, Subcommittee of the US Senate, which uh, was a letter basically picking up this report prepared by NetNames on behalf of Digital Citizens Alliance and saying, look, 
you people, you credit card companies, have got to do more in this space. Here are 30 companies that have uh, clearly, obviously, must be infringing because there's a report which says they're infringing. And so Visa and MasterCard, you must do something about this. Otherwise, you know, an, an implied threat, we will have to regulate in this area or we'll do something further. So that was the gestation of Visa and MasterCard writing to PayPal and uh, in consequence, PayPal withdrawing service from Mega. So, you know, as we have described it in New Zealand, uh, when we've been talking about some changes to our copyright laws in, in uh, recent times, this sounds very much and is very much guilt on accusation. It's, it turns the presumption of innocence on its head simply by someone making an accusation untested uh, on without any notice to the subject that they are infringing copyright. Suddenly these dramatic and uh, very draconian consequences flow. What then happened was that uh, Mega tried to convince PayPal that, that, uh, that it wasn't a cyber locker and wasn't a haven for infringing content. Yes, like any cloud storage system, it has infringing content and it must do uh, uh, in order to preserve its safe harbours, both in New Zealand and the United States and Europe and so on. It takes the uh, appropriate and normal steps to uh, not promote infringing content and to take infringing content down and to uh, delete the accounts of uh, repeat infringers that it finds on its system. And it has a vanishingly small amount of uh, infringing content that is uploaded to its services, notwithstanding that it is uh, user-controlled encryption. So Mega has absolutely no control and indeed no sight of that material until someone wants to share it uh, with other people. So we were Mega and ourselves were pretty astounded at how a report from you know a, a little-known brand agency in the United Kingdom could suddenly cause this dramatic effect. We uh, obviously approached both Digital Citizens Alliance and NetNames and asked them to uh, show, provide them with masses of evidence in the same way that we had provided PayPal with uh, comprehensive evidence that Mega was not a cyber locker. We, in fact, ironically pointed to uh, a particular slide uh, that uh, that NetNames had presented when they were launching uh, with Digital Citizens uh, the report in the United States, which summarised, uh, nicely summarised, their view of what a cyber locker was compared to a, a standard cloud storage site. The terrible irony of that was that Mega ticked all the boxes of a normal cloud storage site and none of the boxes of a cyber locker. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was absolutely astounding that uh, NetNames claiming to have done rigorous research, claiming to have checked carefully the sites that it was now accusing of being cyberlocker, pirates, dirty infringers and so on, profiting from uh, other people's creative content, had completely uh, missed its own criteria in terms of what a cyber locker is. And 
Mega clearly wasn't within that category. So we wrote to Digital Citizens Alliance, we wrote to NetNames. They, uh, not surprisingly, because you know this was a concerted effort to try and uh, capture sites that they didn't like for whatever reason, uh, refused to pull the report, refused to apologise, doubled down on uh, the fact that they considered uh, mega infringing. And I, it's interesting in the context of this that uh, Mega uh, is a pretty big site. It's got 150 million users around the world now. It has never been listed in the US Trade Representatives uh, 301 report. Mm -hmm. You know, and that and that report, many people would say, is 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 pretty out there in terms of yeah. uh, the same sort of accusation against certain sites that perhaps. Uh, you know, if you really, if you really investigated, couldn't, wouldn't be upheld because, you know, similar to the WIPO database that we're talking about, it is a response to submissions made by rights holding organizations to put sites that they don't like on that list. Mega yeah. has never, Mega has never been on that list. So, you know, one would have expected that if Mega was this haven for piracy, it would have appeared on the USTR list. It never has. Yeah. That's interesting, actually. And, and, and again, just to jump in real quick, just in case people aren't that familiar with the 301 list, this is a list that the the USTR, the US Trade Representative, is required to put out every year um, of, it, it was initially supposed to be directed at like, you know, countries that were engaging in infringing activities, originally was meant, I think, mainly for like counterfeiting and things like that, but has, has evolved over time. Um, and they they also put out sort of this special uh, uh, extra list also of, of websites that they consider to be like pirate markets or whatever. And the, the process here is kind of a joke. And, and um, there's been a lot of criticism over the years because it's basically, as you said, rights holders submit a list of, they say, these are all the bad guys. And the, the USTR appears to just sort of take that list maybe do a very, very quick check on most of it and then republish it as, a, as an official government document. Um, and that's created all sorts of uh, downstream problems. But it's interesting to hear that that even with that, because I'm sure some of the submissions from the MPAA or from the RIAA um, probably included MEGA at some point. So the fact that they didn't show up on the USTR list is, is at least uh, pretty noteworthy. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's right. I think they call them notorious markets. It's always that's lovely. that's that's the uh, yeah. There's the the special three hundred one list which names countries where bad stuff is happening, and then the notorious markets list, which is it comes out of that process, yeah. and and uh, is is officially separate from the the full three hundred one list uh, is the one where they name different websites. Yep. Yeah, there must be a um, a university course and is choosing these. <laughs> pejorative names yeah. or, 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 or names like Brips, I suppose. But uh, yeah. the, uh, so we tried uh, by, you know, polite but firm uh, letters to Digital Citizens Alliance and, and uh, net names to get the report taken down with, you know, the obvious threat that, look, this is, this is clearly defamatory of Mega. We are, Mega was a small startup growing very quickly at that stage, but, but relatively small. And you know this is this could have the effect of killing Mega's business. Yeah. So it was a significant event for for a report that clearly was was incorrect. Uh, that didn't 
that didn't have the desired effect. So we instructed a firm called Oldswang in the United Kingdom, now part of Navarro, I think, who are renowned as a, a law firm which, which typically represents the very organisations that we were trying to trying to persuade that they shouldn't uh, they should withdraw this report. In other words, the media, the IT industry, the rights holding organisations, mm -hmm. they are avowedly a firm that that represents uh, owners of creative content and tries to stop infringement. So we thought, well, let's go for a firm that is not just a uh, a soft touch, a patsy that is going to present whatever we uh, think because uh, we are its client. They they did their own due diligence on Mega first of all because they didn't want to be associated, obviously, with a, with a entity that was uh, promoting pirated content. Mm -hmm. And they then uh, said, "Well, look, you're you're clearly not that." So we are quite happy to write a report, do some analysis, take a legal view. Their legal view was that quite clearly the report was defamatory. It was completely incorrect. They had a forensic accounting firm in New Zealand where Mega is based review Mega's systems, review the material on the site, and all of those conclusions pointed to the fact that Mega was not a cyber locker and was not a haven for infringing content. So we wrote again to Digital Citizens Alliance and to NetNames, presenting them with Oldswang's findings. They again refused to do anything about it. Mm. Now at this stage, Mega had the decision to take, well, do we sue uh, these companies in the United States and the United Kingdom uh, for defamation? And the decision was taken, look, it's just too expensive to do that. It's yeah. very difficult to sue uh, in a corporate environment against companies or against uh, NGOs such as Digital Citizens Alliance uh, for defamation and the chances of getting a significant damages award which would have compensated for the, the damage done were on the advice of Oswang quite limited. So unfortunately Mega had to just I guess suck it up. It was one of those things that it it just had to live with. Now for a luckily Mega has uh, because of the way in which its systems work and because of the support of its both of its stockholders and of its users, it has survived. But it was a close-run thing at the time, I can recall, because you know once you've been blacklisted, and when I say blacklisted, blacklisted by Visa and MasterCard, we didn't know at the time that there was a blacklist that Visa and MasterCard had. It took actually years for us hmm. to find out that that was, in fact, what had happened, that there was this private secret blacklist that uh, the credit card companies had that uh, was then made available not only to PayPal or was then uh, enforced not only with PayPal, but also Mega found it very difficult to obtain just normal day-to-day -day banking services from banks in New Zealand and, and indeed overseas because, as you might expect, if you're blacklisted by the two biggest credit cards in companies in the world, the banks do look very carefully at you. Right. And so, you know, we, I can recall the executives of Mega uh, attending discussions with banks and the banks not really telling them 
why it was that they weren't, prepar weren't prepared to just provide normal day-to-day -day banking services. There was, you know, the, the company was based in New Zealand. It was a registered company. They, they could see it was transparent in terms of its accounts and so on and so forth. So there was no reason that we knew of why these banks wouldn't give service and why payment companies wouldn't give service until we found, as I say, years later that because of the Senator Leahy letter, uh, NIGA had been blacklisted. So, you know, for a small company, imagine you're a small small company just starting out. You rely, you're an online service, so you rely on payment providers, you rely on banking services, and all of a sudden those taps are turned off. Yeah. It's, it's very difficult to then find, you know, you have to go through the rigmarole we went with through with PayPal with other payment providers, uh, none of whom are based in New Zealand, so you have to you have to find a payment provider who's prepared to provide service. They also obviously have contact with Mega and with the Visa and MasterCard. Mm -hmm. So unless they were prepared to take a very robust approach, it was it was going to be difficult. Now eventually, uh, Mega did find payment providers, and it's since found that this is quite common. That you know. Visa and MasterCard and other providers will put pressure on payment providers, and then all of a sudden you find that your payment provider just ceases providing service because, from their perspective, it's just not feasible for them to take a position anti these credit card companies. And so, uh, for companies like Mega, uh, I've since found you just <laughs> you need to have a you need to have a slate of payment providers uh, ready and willing. To, to step in, or at least a, a series of them available at any one time, because you never quite know when one of them is going to be uh, cajoled or persuaded or forced to cease providing new service. So that's uh, it's an interesting ecosystem yeah. uh, and shrouded in mystery, as I say, that we didn't we didn't uh, weren't able to delve into until we eventually traced this tortured web right back to. Um, <laughs> Right, right. right through Senator Leahy's letter and to the Digital Services Alliance and so on. So, you know, when you when you think about how that, how the impact of that, and when I saw the WIPO proposal for the BRIC database, database, it just reminded me so much of how the simple act of putting a company on a database without uh, affording that company due process can have such a dramatic effect. Yeah. And that's, the, that's the story. I mean, it's, 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 one would have thought that uh, that example and other examples uh, would have made people think about the fact that, uh, as you said at the start of this interview, Mike, uh, this uh, podcast, Mike, you know, copyright infringement is not a binary yes or no. There is a massive grey area in the, in the middle there, uh, you know, both under jurisdictions like the United States or Europe or New Zealand. There are plenty of arguments from people who hold reasonable views on both sides of the equation as to whether something is or is not copyright right. infringing. And so, you know, and, and, and in this instance, it's not Obviously, it's not Mega who is uh, providing the infringing material. So you're, you're one step further removed from the ability to decide whether a particular piece of content is infringing. 
that's hard enough by itself. But to then try and aggregate uh, some sort of collective infringement to a uh, to a cloud storage site on the basis of you know a certain number perhaps of of pieces of content being allegedly infringing is just beyond the pale when you're putting something on a list that has no due process around it. You know, you, yeah. would, have ex you would have expected, uh, you know, in Mega's instance, that NetNames would have come to it and said, look, we, we think you're infringing. Prove, you know, show us that you're not. You know, even, right. that is, even that is bad enough because you shouldn't have to show that you're, uh, prove your innocence, but at least we could have contested the evidence and would have been able to point to NetNames' own criteria for a cyberlocker and very easily show that Mega was not. Of course, having gone to gone to the great lengths to publish this report and have a glitzy event in the United States, and uh, we suspect uh, promoting the report through to Senator Leahy rather than him just picking him up by, right. by on the off chance. Having gone to those lengths, uh, unsurprisingly, they didn't feel uh, that it was a good look for them to back down in such a in such yeah. uh, in, in the face of such an obvious argument. Yeah, I mean, Leahy has a, a very close relationship with the MPAA, and and they uh, they make sure that he appears in every Batman movie. So yeah, he he did not. That was not a. He wasn't just uh, randomly surfing the internet and come across that story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we suspected uh, as much, and it 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 uh, yeah, it was it was a salutary lesson as to how these sorts of uh, these sorts of arrangements and these sorts of relationships can flow yeah. through to direct impact. Yeah. And I mean, you know, and, and some people look at Megan, as you mentioned, sort of very briefly, like it, it was, you know, started by Kim.com, who certainly has a reputation. I mean, he's still still in the process of, of fighting the, the legal fight over uh, his arrest and the shutdown of his former company, which had a similar name, which was Mega Upload, right? Yes. And so some people hear this story and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," but but you know, eh, you know, it's I'm, I'm sure it's all infringing, right? And and that's that's one of the responses I hear to a lot of this, which is basically like, "Yeah, you know, uh, you know, these are bad people. They, you know, it it deserves to be. I'm I'm sure it's mostly infringing." And and that that part scares me too because I think you know that's crazy, right? I mean, you know, whatever one might think of of Kim.com and Mega Upload, like. You know, we should be looking at this case in particular, and and Mega, and what what it does, and and what it's done, and and you know whether or not it deserves to be on this kind of list. Mm. Well, I think I mean, as I've referred to it, is guilt guilt on accusation. Uh, what that is is guilt by association, yeah. because <laughs> Mega is an entirely different site from Mega Upload. Uh, it, yeah, it was formed in two thousand and thirteen. <laughs> I mean, ironically, it was formed literally in a bedroom, and I, I was there at the time because I had uh, done due diligence on it and mm -hmm. had decided that it was it was appropriate to act for a site that was clearly uh, aimed at providing a, uh, a new and an innovative cloud storage service. Uh, it it was literally because they were. Uh, I mean, this is a bit of a backstory, but because they were. The four gentlemen who are the subject of the of the allegations, Kim.com included, were sequestered here in New Zealand because they had come over for 
for Mr.com's 38th birthday. None of them actually lived in New Zealand, but they'd come over for his birthday <laughs> and then were arrested uh, in, a, in a major operation here in New Zealand, which was hugely, hugely uh, famous throughout New, in New Zealand and indeed overseas at the time. They were sequestered in a, in a literally in a, in a house in a suburb of Auckland and built mega uh, in a bedroom in that house. So it was because they had nothing else to do. They were stuck right. there <laughs> right. waiting, waiting for their court case and indeed still are. They're not all in the same house anymore, but they, yeah. they uh, were stuck. Since that time, I mean, and, and hey, look, I, I get that um, Mr.com, as this is want, decided to, to poke the bear in a sense by calling <laughs> mega mega when the previous side had been called mega upload. Right. Many of us would have said that that was a silly idea and that you get, you reap what you sow. But, you know, that was his, that was the choice. But since that time, and indeed at the time when the net names report was published, uh, it, Mr.com has had no involvement with mega. Right. Now he, he retired, resigned as a director in, in, two, in around October 2013. His uh, interest in Mega is an, infinitis, an infinitesimal interest now because mm -hmm. he has ceased to be involved and ceased to want to invest. And in fact, uh, every now and again throws stones at Mega for, because he, he feels that the new sites that he wants to form are going to be uh, incredibly better than Mega. So the relationship between Mega and Mr.com has, has long since ceased and right. has ceased at the time. So that was the important point that we made to Netnames as well, that, look, okay, it was formed by someone who has a checkered past, as do most of the internet companies that you could name in the world. You know, right. Microsoft, Apple, uh, all of these companies were started by people who perhaps uh, pushed the boundaries when they first started. Now, and, and, you know, Mr.com, despite the allegations, uh, has not been, uh, let alone convicted. He hasn't even had a day in court. In fact, ironically, uh, another side story, Mr.com has never been to the United States. Right. So, you know, the idea that simply because a person has uh, had allegations made against them in the past must mean that anything that they are involved with now uh, tainted with the same allegations and therefore deserving of this sort of behaviour by supposedly reputable organisations who are trying to stamp out uh, copyright infringement is just ludicrous. Yeah. That's, that's not due process, that's, that's uh, guilt by association, guilt by accusation, and that's the danger, I think, with these sorts of databases. Yeah, and so so the the WIPO effort seems even more concerning, right? I mean, because you know WIPO is associated with the UN, and so it's sort of a quasi governmental organization to some extent, and that that gives it an even higher level of you know respect, I guess, from from people who might see it. I mean, they think that this is you know this is coming from this respected organization that is. Um, you know, it's it's not you know in the case of like the net names report or even the the uh, um, universal report that I talked about earlier. Like those were clearly from private companies, so people could at least take that into account. When it comes to a, a database from WIPO, it'll appear a lot more official, and I think you know a lot of people will assume that there's been 
more due process and more caution put into making this list, and yet um, there's no evidence to support that at all. Um, no, I mean, the, the, the only evidence we have is a paper from the committee, the WIPO committee that is is uh, addressing it, usually made up by, the, the committee is made up of representatives from countries, although I should hasten to add that New Zealand has had no part in uh, the BRIT uh, proposal, which I'm, I'm gratified by because I think it's a bad proposal. Uh, it's, and also there is observer status for organisations such as NPA and um, mm -hmm. uh, BFI in the United Kingdom and so on. So uh, the proposal that WIPO will create, a, not even create really, it just provides the mechanism for the creation of a database. The input into that database is made directly as per the report from this committee by authorised submitters and right. the understanding is that the authorised submitters are going to include the likes of MPA or, you know, who, who, who knows, Digital Citizens Alliance. Right. So uh, to suggest that, and then WIPO won't review those submissions, it won't, for example, go out and have a look at a site and see whether it does appear to be infringing or not. Uh, they will simply put it on the report and then uh, they will promote it to advertisers who are therefore encouraged not to allow their ads to be served on these sites. And if you're an ad-driven, if there are still ad-driven revenue sites around, <laughs> but uh, if that model still works, but if, 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 if you are reliant on some, to some degree on advertising revenue, then in the same sort of way that Mega was reliant on having PayPal and payment providers provide it with service, that can be turned that could be turned off and so that yeah. can have a dramatic effect on a site that does you know particularly start you know site innovative sites that are starting up where advertising revenue can be quite important in terms of the overall revenue base then that could be have a dramatic effect you know for mega luckily it had supporters but you know if you're a startup burning cash uh, uh, then you just may not be able to survive yeah um, and, and in fact, you know, the, the engineer from WIPO who responded in our comments seemed to indicate that this was a good thing. The fact that WIPO, you know, he was just like, oh, we're just, you know, we're just building the technology. We're just building the tool. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, we're only allowing in these, these authorized submitters. So what's the problem? Why, why is anyone mad at WIPO? <laughs> it's, just like... it's, a, it's an amazing irony, isn't it, Mike, that, uh, WIPO should should say that because of course that's the argument that rights holding yes. organisations use to criticise yes. platforms. They say, yes. well, your platforms say, well, look, we're just a platform. We're agnostic. We're a dumb pipe. We're you know, we're not. We're not. And so why? And the, they're, they're roundly criticised, and more so now, probably rightly, yes. given you know yeah. what's happened in recent times. But WIPO is using exactly the same argument. No, we're just providing the platform. It's, yep. it's, not, it's nothing to do with us. You know, we're, we go and talk to the in-country submitters and convince them that they've put something on the list that's wrong. It's nothing to, you know, we don't, we don't review. We're just providing a service. Yeah. I think that's, that's incredibly ironic. Yeah, no, that that was sort of my reaction too, and then the fact that like you know he gave the example, you know he focused obviously on the on the government submitters, even though as you noted, like it, there's nothing in this that that indicates that it has to be government agencies. But the three that he named, which were the the agencies in France, Italy, and Russia, all have pretty checkered pasts in terms of the kind of uh, you know in um, 
Russia and Italy, they both do site blocking and those agencies mm. have a pretty long history of, uh, of not being that careful about the sites that they block and not really having much in the way of due process. Um, in, in Russia, perhaps that's not surprising <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Russia, the Russian government has actually used copyright against, uh, against enemies of uh, the uh, current leadership <laughs> uh, multiple times. There, were there was an example a few years ago of um, uh, the Russian government actually using copyright and working with Microsoft of all companies to crack down on protesters. Uh, and claim that they were using pirated copies of uh, like Microsoft Office or Windows in order to arrest all of these protesters. Mm -hmm. um, but, the, but you know, even more to the point, you know, there's a lot of, both uh, Russia and Italy have site blocking laws that allow for, without any due process based entirely on accusation, for ISPs to have to um, block different sites. And, and we've covered examples in both cases in both countries of sites that clearly are not infringing that were included on those lists. And so for WIPO to say like, well, you know, there's no problem. It's a government organization. So, mm. you know, what's, what's, what's the big deal? Um, struck me as, as really, really surprising and, and, and really to me suggested how little thought that anyone working on the BRIP database have, has actually put into this, right? I mean, they, it, like so many people, they just assume that these things are obvious and easy um, and, and don't even seem to recognize that there might be a problem um, around, you know, basic due process or what actually counts as a, a site that is dedicated to infringement. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that that worries me greatly. And, and my interactions with, with the WIPO people were not very encouraging. I mean, I was happy that this engineer came in and explained stuff. Uh, and then and he he got very upset when he realized he probably shouldn't have done that. Mm. Um, but um, you know, but Wipo itself, when I reached out through through more official channels, were really just like um, they had no interest in commenting and 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 basically kept pushing me off and saying, well, you know, we, we won't comment until until more things are official. And I was just like, shouldn't shouldn't you be able to answer you know press questions before these things are official? Um, yeah, and I think you know. With the best will in the world, if you sit in an echo chamber of people who all have the same view, yeah, then you won't test these sorts of issues because everyone is in agreement right from the start. So you know it spirals from there to proposals that, in the cold light of day, and if they were robustly discussed, most people would say are uh, just ridiculous. Right. You, you cannot suggest that allowing vested interests to put uh, the names of alleged pirate sites on a database is going to going to result in anything but uh, false accusations and uh, uh, the, the dramatic effects that, that happened to mega so yeah you know, I just don't I don't really understand how people could uh, arrive at a conclusion that, a list like this, when, as you say, there are plenty of examples of these lists having been tried before and been proved to be uh, uh, be dangerous, anyone could have expected that the result here would be any different. And so, yeah. uh, you know, I, I and I, I don't, you know, I don't have any, I don't hold any truck with uh, infringing with sites who promote or post sure. infringing content. Yeah. It's and I, I I wouldn't even mind a list if the list <laughs> right. was 
formed with a significant degree of due process, and in particular, that any site that was proposed to be put on the list before it was put on the list, because obviously once it's published, it's, it becomes too late, but before they were put on the list, had the opportunity to make submissions that there was some sort of appeal process. You know, normal sorts of things that most of us would say are an appropriate way of dealing with a very complex issue. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, related to that, too, I mean, you look at the history of sort of innovation around content and the ability to to create and distribute um, and broadcast content. You know, almost every one of those new technologies in the early days is declared infringing. I mean, it was true of mm. radio. It was true of television. It was true of cable television, um, satellite television. They were all video recorders, the, most famously, right? The video <laughs> recorders, all yeah. of this kind of stuff. The, the You know, that was the, the Boston Strangler mm. um, to, to Hollywood. Um, and, you know, and so Imagine with any of those technologies, if the legacy industry, before anything could get started, could just put them on a list where there's no, you know, with, with most of those other technologies, they went through various legal fights. And in some cases, you know, different legal structures were set up. In some cases, they were determined to be legal. In some cases, determined to not be legal. Mm. But there was this whole process that allowed that to play out. And, and each time, you know, once that mess, you know, you'd have a few years or maybe a decade worth of legal fighting where there would be a mess, but each time that would create sort of, you know, a, a better world for everybody. I mean, mm. including the content creators, because it gave them new, new sources of revenue, new routes for, for distribution and all this kind of thing, new channels. And, you know, but it is part of the process. And, you know, I kind of wish that, that some of those companies recognize that earlier and, and instead of, you know, immediately going to the, the, uh, the lawyers, no offense, <laughs> uh, you know, was, was was willing to to look for ways to say like, well, hey, we can embrace this new technology and, and open up new new revenue streams. But if you can just put put someone on the list and effectively, you know, kill it uh, as it's getting started with no due process, no transparency, um, you you lose out on that possibility and you lose out on all of those things that historically have actually helped the industry. Mm, mm. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it's 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 interesting, isn't it? Because those sorts of innovative new companies, they are creators, and yeah. the, these industries are fond of saying that they are supporting creativity, and right. that is their driving their driving goal. And yet, some forms of creativity, uh, which you know, all creativity pushes boundaries. That's what it is. Right. whether it's in the arts or the sciences or in technology. And so the idea that these forms of creativity, which may be new and may upset the status quo, are not deserving of the same sort of support from these supposedly creative supporting organisations is, to me, it's unusual. It, it, as you say, it, it does tend to drive you towards the idea that they are really protecting legacy creativity as opposed to innovation. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate and it's unfortunate that WIPO is willing to help them. Uh, mm. Yeah. Continue to do that. Oh, it is. 
Um, anyways, uh, Rick, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate, you know, you, you, uh, you know, spoke up and told this story, which I think is important. I wish, I wish the people at WIPO were listening. <laughs> I wish others were listening. I don't necessarily know that they are, but, uh, I think it's important for people to understand these things and think about these things. Um, so I, I'm, I was really glad that you spoke out and I'm, uh, appreciative that you were able to come on the podcast to talk about it as well. No, it's been great to talk to you, Mark, and thanks for the invitation. Sure, and uh, thanks to everyone for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week. To grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and think of the tap.